Hi, and welcome to Drinking with Creatives, where we drown journalistic responsibility in a pool of vodka. My name is Jeremy Berger, a filmmaker and editor, and each week I chat with a professional creative, have a few drinks, and chat about the topics they're currently facing. How hard have you ever looked at color? I mean, really looked. Do you know the difference between luminance, saturation, and hue? Well, Lenny does. Lenny Mastrandrea is a department head and colorist at Nice Shoes, one of the top creative studios in North America. Color grading is often something that gets overlooked by people outside of the industry, and I thought it'd be enlightening to have somebody come in and talk about his particular brand of sorcery. Take a look. First of all, Lenny, most important question of the day. What are you drinking? Well, I am drinking uh, one of my favorite beers. It's called La Fin du Monde, which, as you might guess, the world, which I felt was kind of appropriate for this kind of world we're living in right now, though hopefully it is not the end of the world. <laughs> one hopes cheers to that sir cheers to that it's belgian triple with this undertones of cherry which i seem to gravitate towards these all these beers with undertones of cherry but uh, they're so delicious oh absolutely is that a uh, what's it called oh they age them in fruit caskets they do oh they do. Belgian, well, no, you say it's a Belgian triple. So that's got to be strong because the triple is oh, it, very potent. Yeah, now I feel bad. I'm starting off with a 5% Sierra Nevada pale ale. Delicious, don't get me wrong, but I have had a few recordings that once in the editing phase that kind of said, mm, maybe I shouldn't have started with the IPAs because <laughs> the last half hour of this. Uh, so, Lenny, before we have too much to drink, please tell everyone uh, who you are, what you do, and where we can find you. Um, I am Lenny Mastrandrea. I'm a colorist. I work at a place called Nice Shoes, and that's where you can find me at niceshoes.com, Lenny Mastrandrea, for uh, on Instagram, my name as well. Find a way to get the spelling to everybody out there because it is kind of difficult. Um, I've been doing this job for 25 years. I have a passion for color grading. Um, I got into I actually didn't even know what color grading went to communications focusing in radio and TV and not a single one of my professors mentioned color grading. Um, so it wasn't until I got into the in industry and I was an intern so long ago um, that I started to understand and see what this, what a colorist contributed to any piece of content he was creating. I came across uh, a feature which really inspired me so much. Um, believe it or not, it was Sleepy Hollow mm. uh, because I feel that collaboration between a DP, a colorist, and a director, I think that without the look and style that they put on that film, it would have never been the kind of feature it was. I remember that picture. Remember, very soft, very... Uh... God, how would you describe the palette of that? It was very cool, very dark, very desaturated. Um, and it led to this, it spoke of this sort of bleak world, mm. which is kind of what it was. It was supposed to be kind of a bleak approach to the feature. Mm. Um, and a bit hopeless as well. If you remember the story, it was, you know, kind of hopeless for him. Mm -hmm. I remember the movie very well. It's, it's, and I've, I also have a love of old... Uh, hammer horror films which it kind of emulated i know at least from the 
uh, practical effects level. All that blood was straight out of a uh, Hammer horror movie from the 70s. <laughs> Wonderful. It sure was, without a doubt. For the people who don't know what it is, what is a colorist? Ah, that's an excellent question. If you ask, uh, if you tell anyone uh, that you're a colorist who is not in my industry, right away they check out my hair to see if uh, I've done a good job with my coloring. <laughs> uh, but that is not at all what it is. Uh, a colorist is someone who takes images, whatever they may be for, whether it's uh, you know a commercial uh, series or a feature, um, and they add a look and style to it. And what they are trying to do is convey a kind of mood. In fact, uh, you know, Stanley Kubrick said that a film should be a progression of moods and feelings. And it's that moods, that word moods, that really hits home for me because I think that it really enhance the image is perceived, the way a scene is perceived. You have, you know, and, and that's, of course, it's not simply the work of, of, of the colorist alone. It has to do with the DP as well. Um, but I think it can add to the story it, by not, you know, not, we're not even telling anyone to, that what we're doing. We are just making it more of what it was meant to be. Got it. Okay. That's a perfect description. <laughs> well, tell me what your, uh, walk me, well, I think walk everybody through what a typical day is like for colors or even just like a project, like a project lands on your doorstep right now. Give us an overview of it. Um, you know, we're going to get source materials wherever they may come from. They could be from, it's very rare that anything has been acquired from film anymore, though I do miss those days. Mm -hmm. um, so it will be usually some raw file, like a, a, a red camera or an Alexa. Um, and they will provide all those files to us, which can be substantial. They'll also provide um, an edit list um, so that I can reassemble their cut um, that they are trying to grade. So in other words, we're focusing on the exact shots and not on long pulls, uh, which would be much waste effort um, on exactly what we need to. And then we meticulously um, create and stylize it um, as per our client's requests. Sometimes clients come to us with a, an idea in mind, um, and sometimes they don't. Sometimes they're, they're looking to the colorist to offer them ideas. Where do we go? And we're not going to provide simply a singular solution. Um, there are so many different color approaches, especially with today's modern tool sets. Really, the looks we can create are unlimited. So we look at it and go, okay, what does this say to me? And, and often I'll, a client will, I'll ask them what they're trying to convey with this. What is the goal here? And I'll interpret what they're telling me, and I will create looks that reflect what they're doing, what they're looking for. And, but at the same time, I might say, well, okay, but this is what I was thinking. Look at this, look at this. Maybe we do this in a desaturated kind of way. Maybe we do in a low contrast kind of way, uh, you know, and I present all these styles for a few different scenes. Perhaps we do some wide, some close-up setups, um, and then we collaborate and we come together uh, in the end with, one style, one look for the piece, or perhaps simply for the scene that we are working on. I think the art of collaboration is, is developing a, a language with the director or DP or both. 
Um, and the reason why I say that is because, you know, there are some ideas that are incredibly simple to convey. Um, say, for instance, you're looking for something to be happy. Well, happy is pretty easy. You probably you want to go with bright and sunlighty. Uh, you might have a little oversaturation of your color tones. And if someone says sad, well, that's easy too. You know, you could go with something really dark or desaturated or, or lean towards the bluer side. But what do you do when someone says, well, I want this to be sexy? Or they say, I want this to have sparkle. And I've actually been asked that question. Um, can you give this sparkle? And it wasn't a sparkly piece. There weren't any twinkling lights in it. It was just sparkle. So we had to decide what sparkle meant. Um, so it takes a little bit of time and sometimes it, it flows so quickly. Sometimes it takes a little bit more um, time, but you know, uh, once you develop that language with a director or a DP, it can carry through, you know, throughout projects. It's not limited to the single project um, because you develop a relationship with them and you understand what they're looking for. Um, for each person, it's different. Everybody's interpretation of the language of color is different, I guarantee you. <laughs> Simple terms like contrast and uh, exposure and saturation, those are very easy to convey, but others are not, not as easy. I think that, uh, you know, I think that what a DP or director is looking for from the colorist is someone who's going to help them open up some doors um, for their looks and styles. They're looking for your contribution, for the colorist contribution to the project. They're not just looking for someone who is going to follow direction. Um, because following direction uh, inspires, it, it conveys no creativity at all. Um, when you can contribute to the conversation, I think that you're, you're uh, going to build relationships stronger and faster with people. You did say something earlier before that you miss film. Why do you miss film? I just miss the, the texture of it, the look and feel of it. I feel it's got a, a different depth to it with the, uh, the emulsion really makes a big difference. When you, when you see a younger generation looking at those films with grain structure on them, they say, what's wrong with it? Um, or sometimes when something is shot, even on a digital acquisition, if it's shot incorrectly, it can have something in the image that resembles green. Um, and they say, well, what's wrong with it? There's nothing wrong with it. It's, it's a style. It actually used to be the norm mm -hmm. back in the day. Do you think that there's been a priority shift uh, in the change over from film into digital? Because it seems like something like grain structure would be something pretty easy to emulate, right? Grain structure is easy to emulate these days. Um, for a while it wasn't, but it's so rarely called for anymore. No, so few ask for it. I get asked for grain only when I'm doing um, feature work, short film work, sometimes music videos, never ever in advertising anymore, which is the bulk of the work that I do. And there was a, you know, there was a reason for it too. I mean, in the beginning, um, the grain structure of an image actually, um, ended up uh, resulted in larger files because to encode all that extra information all that all those moving pixels so uh it made you know files unmanageable for a while now compression is so much better 
And what else have you found that's like changed in the past 20 years? Because you've seen several, quote unquote, revolutions in that time. We've seen the DV revolution that happened in the uh, early aughts with the DSLR revolution that started back wow, around 2011, 2012. How, is, how has all this made your life easier, harder, more fun, less fun? What happened? Back in the day, uh, in a color correction suite, a client would um, show up with, you know, 30, 40 reels of film. And that could even be for a 60 second commercial. Um, and we would have to load every single one of those rolls up um, on a film scanner, cue to the section we had to color grade, pull those down. And to expedite the process, um, we, we really wouldn't lay them down, those shots down immediately. Um, the reason for that is, you know, say uh, an art director walked in two hours into the session. Well, if you laid everything down the tape already, um, then you got to undo all the work you've already done. So we would instead just grade everything. Um, and at the end of the day, we would go back and load up every single roll of film again. And at that point, we'd lay them off the tape. The biggest change I remember was the introduction of the Da Vinci uh, Renaissance which was the first time we saw power windows. Mm. A power window allows you to create a mask and isolate um, colors inside and outside of that window. So you could manipulate tones differently. But then the next generation of those color correction systems introduced more windows. Mm. So we were allowed to do more and the client would walk in the door and the first thing they would ask is, how many windows do you have in this room? And it was so funny because that's not a measure of how good things could be. Mm. And, and they would intentionally use every single window that we had available to us. Oh, how many windows do we have left? We have two left. Oh, let's put one over here. Let's put one over here. That light's too bright. This is too dark. Um, I don't like the saturation over here. Um, so it was, it was really a lot of extra effort. And when you look back at that today, it's, it's so funny um, because today, the things we can do are unlimited. <laughs> There's no end to the windows we could put on it. The transition from four by three to 16 by nine was a really big deal. We actually held seminars at our company um, for assists and editors so they could come down and understand that how the, and, and other people as well to, so they can understand how framing had to be uh, done uh, on a shoot because you know, you had to accommodate both framing sets. Um, you couldn't shoot something that worked in 16 by nine that didn't work in a four by three environment because you'd cut people off on the sides of the frame. Mm -hmm. So that was really a, a big deal. And it took a while for people to understand how that worked. And we would have to create deliverables for both formats um, until there was one network that let us, that said that they would no longer accept dual formats. They would only accept the 16 by nine format and they were going to center crop it no matter what. Huh. That's when everything changed. And now everything was shot as 16 by nine. But we had to, for years, you know, keep in mind that when it hit people's homes, you know, at least half of the country still did not have a 16 by nine TV. They were still looking at a four by three TV. So you didn't want to lose your talent or your product on the side of the frame. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. That would be a, that would be an art direction. No, no. Uh, and an account no-no, and a client no-no, just a no-no yeah, Especially all. if there was some legal content that hadn't... Oh, oh, God. And now, has that changed again now that so much is going towards social media? Like, Insta I know, like, Instagram stories is, become, is starting to become their own deliverables, Facebook, et cetera, et cetera? 
they don't think that anyone really expects anything to work in all of these worlds anymore. So it's not going to work on on uh, Netra, work on Facebook, and work on whatever social media um, that they're they're using as an outlet. So usually when we're doing a transfer now, a color grade or a color transfer, um, we'll get cuts for different setups. So, you know, if we're doing a, something that's going to appear on your iPhone, that's got a completely different framing um, than it's going to have on, uh, on a television. Because um, usually you want to go for something with a vertical format. So instead, you know, grade for that separately mm -hmm. or cut and crop as necessary because perhaps, you know, the spot had two people in it, one shot had two people in it, but for the, for the um, social media, we don't need the two. We're only using the one. So it's no big deal. So you just use, you're only focusing on one person then. And usually they're extracted from the same media. Mm. Well, I'm actually, I was kind of wondering just before we got on, is it okay to ask a colorist what their favorite color is? <laughs> I don't know if I have a favorite color. I have favorite looks. I have favorite, you know, times of day um, where, you know, magic hour. Things like that, early in the morning, end of the day, when the sun is fading over the horizon. Mm. That's when the most beautiful colors in the world we live in exist. Uh, you know, you see the uh, the you you see all the the, the different color tones of a, of a cloudy sky um, as the sun sets. Those those are the most amazing moments to me. I mean, you know, not from a creative standpoint. I mean, that's what I appreciate most. I don't have a favorite color though. <laughs> I guess a color should like all colors. Well, it's interesting that you say that. I'm, I'm curious. Did you start looking uh, just with your own eyes at the colors in the world differently after taking on the job of a colorist? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Creating um, color tone. You started to see how light plays on people's faces when you have a conversation, how it changes the mood um, of, of, a, of a place. Um, you know, say for instance, you walk into a, a, a nice restaurant. Well, you don't want that overlit bright and certainly don't want anything kind of fluorescent in there, but sometimes there is just incredible lighting that is just soft and, and stunning enough. And you appreciate what candlelight does to a person's face. And um, so, yeah, it definitely has a huge effect. I have to tell you, one of the things that um, I felt called to get over once I started as a colorist, mm -hmm were errors, not mine. I would watch movies and it would drive me nuts. <laughs> and, and, it was, and it would drive me crazy. And it took me so long to get over that. And I had to, the reason why I had to is because it would distract me from the film. I'd get removed from the story and stop thinking about it. And then I'd be focusing on the color. And it, honestly, it was my wife too after a while because I complained about it so much. So I had to start to learn to ignore the color unless the color was intentionally a stylized approach. Um, it, was, it was contributing to the film because sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's just make it look nice, make it look natural. That's the goal. Mm -hmm. But sometimes it is stylized. Well, you said you had, you had favorite looks. What's, what, are, what are your top five like looks? Um, hmm. I don't know what my five... Favorite. Oh, or just like the top, like like I, I was just curious when you said that. Like, what's we already talked like the, about the look that uh, Tim Burton and his crew did with uh, Sleepy Hollow. Are there other like looks that 
you gravitate to or? Uh, well, you know, I can't, I can't say I gravitate towards any of them specifically because I have to remain open to people's new ideas. Um, but with, without a doubt, um, you know, uh, when, when a feature is really stylized, that's really when it makes a, a big difference for me. Mm. Like we said, like, like, uh, like Tim Burton's films, mm -hmm. that's a big deal. Um, you know, for instance, um, Wes Anderson films, mm -hmm. they always have a very stylistic approach. They're just absolutely stunning. Um, and I know I mentioned that earlier as well. Um, but you look at the movies like uh, No No Country for Old Men. Yes. Uh, the Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And each one has a different color approach. Sicario. Um, but then you you know you have people like Kaminsky that are doing stuff like Saving Private Ryan, which just incredible camera work. And again, I, maybe it's maybe I like the bleak world. I don't know. Saving Private Ryan <laughs> is a little bleak as well in its color approach. But I think you have to create, look, match the content. Okay, so what do you think uh, the future will like hold for colorists? I mean, we've seen such a big change from uh, Rec 709 to now we, everyone's shooting logs. A lot of people are shooting raw now, which is personally insane to me, but what have you. Like, what do you think, like, what do you think this is a conversation we're going to be having in 20 years from now? Well, I think the biggest change we're seeing now is the HDR pipeline. Hmm. Um, you know, high dynamic range color, which is to me, I know some colorists who don't like it. I think it's a colorist dream because it expands the color landscape. It gives you more contrast to work with, uh, many more steps across the rainbow. I'm not going to talk about the, 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 the very specifics of it because we could get into that and have a very, very long conversation. Um, but it gives you flexibility to do things you were never able to do before and create worlds that are much more realistic um, than they ever were before as well. So, you know, we, we, I think we've hit maybe the peak at what we need for resolution. Yes. You know, we're, we're sending out 4K imagery. I know there's probably, you know, there's probably 8K ready to go very soon. Mm -hmm. Broadcast point. But I don't feel there's any need for it. I think that this, we've hit that point where uh, we don't have to keep getting our resolution higher and higher. <laughs> well, I don't know if you heard about Black Magic. What is it? What part? Which one? Oh, they just uh, they like I think a couple of days ago released a new camera. It's 12K. Yeah, you know. Everybody hears just just like when we were buying consumer cameras back in the day. It was all about the K. How many pixels is it? Mm -hmm. People believe that because they capture more, a higher resolution picture, that they can blow it up far more than they did before. But it doesn't really work. No. Yes, you're capturing more, but that doesn't mean that it's going to remain as crystal clear and sharp across the whole landscape of the image. Um, so you can do whatever you want with it. Mm -hmm. That's really why a lot of people are, I have clients who are capturing the highest content and blowing it up to percentages that really don't work. And I have to tell them, you got to back off a little bit. It's too much. <laughs> We've created tools far more powerful than we'll ever need. <laughs> the, the cameras uh, are, are, can't, the, the, are sharper than the lenses, I guess. I don't know, <laughs> perhaps. I don't, I'm not really sure. <laughs> It's, a, it's the most terrifying thing I've ever heard somebody say. 
not in a good way. Now, <laughs> the lenses are the most important part to me. Absolutely. Uh, for getting, and, and of course the lighting has a lot to do with those lenses. You get a good DP with the right lenses and he's going to work magic. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's, it's funny. I was actually, um, I don't know why I was going back through some of the independent films that really inspired me through the nineties. And I come to find out they all, like a lot of them had the exact same DP, this guy, Robbie Mueller. Have you ever uh, taken a look at his work? I have. Yeah. Yeah, I did. I, I've, I've got a Paris, Texas sitting in my Amazon uh, prime <laughs> video uh, to watch down again. I haven't seen that movie in years, but when you talk about the colors, some of the things that were just happening in that picture were just, uh, makes my corneas quiver. I'm not quite sure if that's a thing or if I should just see a doctor, but they definitely <laughs> made the corneas quiver. Ouch. I'm not sure that that sounds like it could be painful. Yeah. I mean, I've, again, you know, it's, it's, the alcohol might be helping too. We're not quite sure. Again, it's just Sierra Nevada Pale Ale. Um, so HDR is coming up. We're we're, we're definitely going to be seeing that uh, coming down. Yeah, the pipeline. we're seeing more and more of that content all the time. In fact, you know, I not too long ago, last year, I bought my first HDR TV, and when that little icon pops up in the corner when I'm watching something on Amazon Prime. It makes me so happy. <laughs> icon that says HDR or Dolby Vision or uh, those, I am like, oh, this could be good. <laughs> Is there like a steep like learning curve for the HDR environment? Um, it is, you're doing much of the same. Mm-hmm. You just have much more to work with. I'd say the learning curve comes from your ability and the pipeline um, to work both. Because keep in mind, HDR content is, and and people with HDR, access to HDR in their homes is still very limited. Mm -hmm. Yes, most of the newer TVs above a certain size, above like 40 inches, have HDR Mm -hmm. uh, in them. But who's going to, you know, we've got a lot of people in this country. Um, So not everybody went out and bought a a TV in the last few years. Mm -hmm. And of course, not all HDR monitors are created equal. Um, so it's a matter of figuring out how to deal with it. And sometimes depending on, on who you're delivering to, they have certain specs as to how they want it delivered. Um, they want the SDR, the standard dynamic range, um, with that is the, you know, what we deal with them for the most part, um, to be delivered, to be graded before the HDR footage, or it might be the other way around. And there are benefits to doing it either way. Um, the landscape remains the same. So you're looking at a, a 16 by nine, you know, a rectangle frame. Mm-hmm. It's just the um, color space that really um, changes. One of the things you talked about is, is uh, you know, the future. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned when we discussed it now, we simply talked about it from a color standpoint. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I wouldn't mind talking a little bit about, you know, um, the pipelines overall, where, we're go- where we might be going in the future. Absolutely. Let's do it. So, um, you know, at, and, and of course, Jeremy, it's, a, you know, it's a little bit of a sell, but I'm trying not to make it a sell. Make it a sell. It's okay. Shameless <laughs> plug. Let's do it. <laughs> at, at Nice Shoes, we've had, uh, you know, a remote color and finishing pipeline established for over a decade. Um, so many of our clients are used to a remote workflow. Um, but our current situation happened and all we had to do was ship resources. We were lucky enough 
that all we had to do is get the equipment to people's homes. Mm -hmm. uh, we had every colorist from New York outfitted within a week and we picked up exactly where we left off. Um, we did have clients who were resistant to the change um, over the years to working from a remote perspective. Um, but with the current situation, they were forced to adapt and found no bumps along the way. Now, you know, we're not unique um, that most high-end companies have de developed some kind of remote workflow. Um, so, you know, where do, where do I think we're going? I think everything's going to be going. The next step is the cloud. Um, but it has to be secure implementation of cloud-based tech. Yes. Um, especially when you're talking about, you know, uh, DI work um, and uh, networks and features and things like that, mm -hmm. where uh, the security of the project is the most important part of it. Mm -hmm. now, just, uh, just last year, we expanded um, uh, Nice Shoes and launched two new companies under the Nice Shoes umbrella. We have Nice Shoes DI headed by Katie Hinson and break and enter VFX set up by Joyce Bowl. Um, they're working together with Dave Zivelk, um, who's our head of VFX Creative and Technology to further develop our, our cloud-based pipeline. Um, and uh, you know, our goal is to develop a pipeline that is the foundation um, for high-end post-production in the future. First of all, congratulations. I didn't know you guys had had that kind of expansion recently. That's fantastic. Yes. We've been expanding a lot. We, uh, you know, two, was it three, three, four years ago, we opened Night Shoes Toronto. Um, you know, we had partner locations where we have uh, colorists mm -hmm. there as well. Um, but we also had partner locations where there were no colorists there and we just remoted in. Um, but a few years back, we launched the Toronto office. Uh, it's not huge. Mm -hmm. um, I think we, I, I don't know how many employees up there. It's certainly not as large as the New York office. Um, but, you know, we use resources from all over and they use our resources as well. After you've, after you've already conquered the world, what's left after that, Lenny? <laughs> um, uh, more conquerors, I guess. I don't <laughs> 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 you know, our, our, our biggest goal, our biggest goal right now is to break into more feature and long form. We do some, we don't do a lot. Um, it's not easy to break into because it's an oversaturated market. You know, much of it is based in LA. Um, we do have, um, you know, our EP is located over in LA um, and she's wonderful and she's making great strides. Um, our EP, uh, the uh, head of uh, Night Shoes DI. Um, but uh, that's really the next step in the process. You know, for or traditionally for 20 some odd years, though we did features, so we did a few series. I did a show for, um, for Amazon Prime and HDR, SDR. Um, we're still getting out of that commercial advertising perception. Mm -hmm. um, and we can do it. We've done it before. We've done it very well before. It's just that, you know, they traditionally they go to the, these places go to the same, these, mar they go to the same people every time for the same kind of work. That last part didn't work out. Sorry, I didn't. <laughs> wasn't very clear on that last one. But <laughs> well, they keep going to the uh, places that have established uh, either relationships or workflows with them before. Is is that what we're going with, or? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. For the most part, that's kind of where where it is. You got to you got to break uh, in there. It's just that's you know it's it's great that 
that our uh, VFX department is called Break and Enter. <laughs> <laughs> I love that name because I, I think it's the greatest. It's, I, it's absolutely perfect for what we're doing right now. Why do I feel like I'm going to end up having to talk to a judge about this at some point, Lenny? What kind of trouble are you going to be getting me into? Well, that's fantastic. Uh, and is there uh, any projects coming up that uh, you can discuss that we can tell people to keep their eyes out for? Uh, I don't think there's anything I can talk about right now. Um, plus, you know, everything right now is also at a standstill. Mm. So, you know, it's a, it's a shame that, you know, production has just come to a halt yeah. at this point. Um, and, you know, from what I understand, you know, sometime next week, um, production will open up again in New York, um, but it will still be very limited. So, you know, everything, I talk to my clients and everything they're doing is on hold at this point. Yes. You know, I've done so many pieces at this point that were um, from stock footage um, or from shoots that were done previously or they're reallocating or reusing uh, old footage from old shoots again. Um, but nothing, nothing new is coming through. Actually, that's not true. That's not true. I did a great spot where they hired... Um, three different DPs and the DPs shot their own families in their own homes. And I know one of our other colorists did the same thing and it was done very well. So they found a way around. People will adapt. Like, you know, they said in Jurassic park, nature finds a way. <laughs> so I guess advertising finds a way. <laughs> I cannot believe that I've done this many of these podcasts so far. And this is somehow the first reference to Jurassic park we've ever had. Uh, I'm a little ashamed of myself. Um, I'm going to speak to somebody about that, but yeah, no pe people are, people are out there and people are hungry. Uh, you know, we got a few white papers out there that I know that at least one was produced in LA and I know uh, Cuomo's office released one for New York about best practices, but, uh, you know, at the same time, you know, we're, 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 we, we, we will, we will get that vaccine someday. I think the whole thing is going to slingshot at some point and we are just going to get an overload of content um, because people have been so backlogged. Let's, let's face it. While all this is going on, people are still working. Ideas are still being passed around. Um, so they're, it's all about uh, implementation. That, that's the next step. It's, it's not about the ideas. What do you mean by when you say that, by implementation? It's, getting, it's getting, the, getting things to happen, getting shoots to happen, getting projects on board. I think that everybody, I think that, what do I want to say here? I think that people aren't resting on their laurels. I think that people are out there sharing ideas. Um, I think content is being written. I just don't think it's, it just doesn't have an avenue to present itself as of right now. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Not yet. Not yet. Not yet. Yeah. But it will happen. I'm sure. Yeah, it has to. We've all, you know, we all went through our sourdough starter and bread making phase, uh, you know, knife sharpening at home phase. Like everyone's been through all the phases and now at this point, they're just creating content that eventually will get produced. You know, I did sharpen all my lives. I, I learned how to do it by hand. I'm an expert I did, now. I did too. I feel like I, I got family members like, can you do mine? <laughs> 
Lenny, this has been absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much for being on the show. It was wonderful to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, you know, I've been looking forward to this for weeks. Thanks, Lenny. For more, head on over to NiceShoes.com. If you enjoy the show and like to support us, you can check out our Patreon at DrinkingWithCreatives.com. Also, please consider subscribing or downloading on your preferred platform. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.